Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons history podcast. You're listening to episode 3, The Morris Worms Odyssey. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss a Simpsons episode and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Get travel sick when we get travel sick. Temporarily solve what we temporarily solve. And today, I'll be looking at Season 1, Episode 3, Homer's Odyssey. And I'll be telling the story of Robert Tapan Morris. He created the Great Worm of 1988, and he was the first person to be convicted under the US Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's a very important piece of history from the world of computer science. Uh, so we were remarking a couple of weeks ago after recording our last episode uh, that this one would actually be uh, a little bit topsy-turvy. Um, we've, we've obviously not been going that long, <laughs> but uh, uh, every previous episode has featured uh, me talking about Captain Wacky and his insane funny adventures, uh, and Tom talking about the systematic destruction of an Eastern European country and its peoples. Uh, and <laughs> this much. time round, uh, Captain Wacky's going to try and kill himself, uh, mm-hmm. and Tom's going to talk about some uh, computer virus stuff. So uh, Yeah, yeah. That's right. So I'm not going to be talking about any revolutions or anything like that. I'm going to be talking about a computer worm, which, to the best of my knowledge, didn't kill anyone. Whereas we're dealing with a Simpsons episode, which features attempted suicide, which is good fun. So one thing I should say at the top of the show, you may remember a bit of controversy about the Staphylococci virus. So A sore point, that. Yes. I got rather irate at an experiment in the episode Bart the Genius where a hamster is infected with the staphylococci virus. I said quite categorically that there was no such thing as a staphylococci virus. I have since been informed of the facts of the matter, shall we say, and if you would like to know about it, because it is quite niche, but if you would like to know about it, email the show, podcast at retrospecticus.org, or tweet at us, we are at underscore retrospecticus. If you know me personally, just poke me in the shoulder and say, Tom, tell us about the hamsters. Something along those lines. If I get one email or one tweet saying, tell us about the hamsters, then I will tell the story in the next show. If I don't, I just won't mention it ever again, and the story of the Staphylococci virus will be lost to the ether. Oh, you wouldn't want that now, would you, listeners? <laughs> okay, so... Uh... Without further ado, let's get going. Season 1, Episode 3, Homer's Odyssey, original US air date, January the 21st, 1990. US viewership was 13.7 million households, and the show beat Married with Children to be Fox's highest rated show of the week. Hooray, I suppose. I, I'm, yes. I'm guessing that was an achievement at the time. <laughs> uh, so there we go. Uh, the UK number one. Uh, see if this rings any bells for you. It was Kylie Minogue with Tears on My Pillow. Now, I'm very familiar with Kylie Minogue. I'm not so familiar with Tears on My Pillow. Ah, well, um, bit of a niche one. Well, say it was a UK number one by somebody who's quite famous in music, a quite a niche offering. Uh, a cover of a doo-wop song originally performed by Little Anthony and the Imperials. Uh, and Kylie's version was taken from the film The Delinquents, which was her serious acting debut, which I don't think went very well because the next film I can remember her appearing in was Street Fighter the movie. 
Um, and if I'm wrong, tweet us at underscore. And, uh, actually, don't bother. Um, I, the, I'd, I'd rather believe I'm right on that one because it's funny. This is this is how poorly cultured. I am. I know nothing of the de- delinquents. I'm very familiar with the Street Fighter movie, <laughs> possibly because I was massively into video games when I was a kid. Well, it's uh, Street Fighter 30th anniversary in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, is it? Uh, I, am, I am fully pre-ordered, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Um, anyway, this isn't the Street Fighter podcast. No, but, no. But Tom, if you ever want to do a Street Fighter and want the history podcast, <laughs> I'm more than happy to do so. Let's get back onto the subject. I you think you so. may find this happens a few times, listeners. I'll say that much in, the, in this one. Uh, production number 7G03. Oh, everyone's, uh, I bet everyone's really excited to hear the production number every time. You know, it's not just something that I throw in there because it's an extra fact that I'm short on material or anything like that. But it's worth noting that this, uh, despite being the third episode produced, was the first script to be finished. And who finished that script? I don't hear you ask. It's uh, writers Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski. God, I'm going to trip over that before we finish this. But um, uh, Kogan is credited with 10 episodes of The Simpsons from seasons 1 to 4, including Barton Daredevil and Last Exit to Springfield. And also wrote for The Tracy Ullman Show, which is not the biggest of surprises, uh, Malcolm in the Middle and Frasier, uh, the latter of which was Emmy Honoured. Uh, he also wrote for Everybody Loves Raymond, but you don't have to watch that. Um, Wallace Wolodarski, on the other hand, is credited with the same ten episodes of The Simpsons from season one to season four, including Treehouse of Horror and Bart's Friend Falls in Love. He too wrote for The Tracy Ullman Show, but seems to have gone primarily into films rather than television. So he's credited as co-writer on the actually pretty good Monsters vs. Aliens, uh, and also credited on projects as diverse as The Fantastic Mr. Fox and The Grand Budapest Hotel. I love the Grand Budapest Hotel. That's a fantastic film. Excellent. Well, you've got Wallace Wolodarski to uh, thank for that. Oh. And that's the last time I'm going to say this in this podcast, and I didn't mispronounce it. Very good, Wallace okay. Wolodarski. Maybe I'll uh, mispronounce it later and you can edit it in. <laughs> um, chalkboard gag. I will not skateboard in the halls. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and the couch gag is the couch collapses. So there we yeah. go. We're still on quite simple, quite early stuff here. It's not quite as uh, uh, intricate as it's going to get later on. Yeah, they were still finding their feet with that sort of thing and still finding their feet with the uh, skin colour of some of the characters, <laughs> as we'll see later. Stay tuned. <laughs> uh, okay, so the synopsis. Uh, Mrs. Krabappel's class goes on a field trip to Springfield Nuclear Power Plant, with Bart's hijinks on the bus leaving the teacher unimpressed, resulting in Bart singing Ballad of John Henry as punishment. Tom, do you know about the legend of John Henry? Uh, I don't know. Well, let me tell you. John Henry is a legendary figure in American folklore. He's an African-American railroad worker and a convict labourer in some versions of this story. Uh, He was said to be the best steel-driving man. So the song is, uh, Old John Henry was a steel-driving man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steel-driving being the swinging of a large hammer into a steel drill to make holes in rock in which explosives could be placed to blast out said rock and form railroad tunnels. So it's said that John Henry had a race against a steam-powered drill that was intended to take the jobs of the steel drivers. And in the legend, he won said race, uh, but expired not long after due to either overexertion or silicosis from the inhalation of dust. Okay. So like most folklore, there's several versions of this story. Um, And since we are a sceptic-affiliated podcast... Um, I must note that this story is presented as legend rather than fact due to the problems in verifying um, both whether it happened and where it happened. 
uh, problems so entrenched that both Leeds, Alabama and Talcott, West Virginia honour him with yearly festivals. And the site of the race itself has been narrowed down to a mere three completely different sites. <laughs> he has had a sizable impact on popular culture with uh, two sets of songs in his name, a set of Hammer songs, you can't see me but I'm doing air quotes, uh, with a deliberately slow pace meant to keep manual workers on such things as railroads, working at a manageable pace that would not cause their hearts to explode, as allegedly happened to the alleged John Henry. There's also the more well-known Ballad of John Henry, versions of which have been recorded by such disparate talents as Johnny Cash, Lead Belly, Bruce Springsteen, Bloody Van Bloody Morrison, and Bart Simpson in the Simpsons episode Homer's Odyssey. And we're back in the room. Nice. Nice, I That's the legend of John Henry, a steel-driving man. I enjoyed that. Good, good, good bit of folklore from a... Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's all we've got time for today, so if you want to get in touch with us... Uh... <laughs> anyway, uh, back to the action. Homer is enjoying a donut for breakfast, because hashtag donuts are a breakfast food, uh, but is aware that Bart is visiting the plant and decides to look in on the kids. Briefly distracted, he drives a cart into a critical part of the reactor, leading to his sacking. And, assumedly, the deaths of everybody within a certain radius. Yes. Um, he can't find any more technical supervisor positions and becomes extremely depressed. After being cut off for credit by Mo, and with Marge returning to fast food service to support the family, Homer can no longer summon the enthusiasm to job hunt or eat, but on seeing a beer commercial, hits on a temporary solution. On smashing Bart's piggy bank to try to pay for a beer, he realises he's hit rock bottom and writes a suicide note before tying a rock to his waist and walking to a bridge to throw himself off to his death. Which is fine. Yeah. Which is a fine thing to happen on a family comedy. Absolutely. absolutely. Episode three of a family comedy. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a big spoiler in the fact that this is episode three, but he's intercepted by his family before killing himself, mm -hmm. uh, and on seeing them nearly get run over, he's imbued with new purpose and sets out to get a stop sign put up near the bridge. He manages this surprisingly easily and begins a crusade to bring safety to Springfield, doing an astounding job, until Lisa points him towards the biggest affront to public safety in the whole town, Springfield Nuclear Power Plant. Spooked by the assembled mob, Mr Burns calls for a summit with Homer to settle the dispute, which he does by appointing Homer his new safety inspector, giving him the job title he holds to this day. Homer promises the town that he will do his best at his new job and helps them to realise that there's a little Homer Simpson in all of them. Going back to the whole suicide thing, I just think, would they have gotten away with that sort of storyline today, given that everyone is just a bit more sensitive about mental health and that kind of thing? One thing that always strikes me in that scene, and you do get occasional very weird, very surreal, unnerving bits of The Simpsons, and this is one of them, Homer has picked up this boulder and he's got it tied around his waist and he passes by the wind fields and it's meant to be two in the morning but they're out on their porch on their rocking chairs and just thinking why are they out now what's going on <laughs> and then Mrs Winfield says oh look there's young Homer going to kill himself and then Mr Winfield says oh no maybe he's just taking his boulder for a walk and then they and they then cackle inanely and I remember watching that going, what? What's going on? 
This makes no sense whatsoever. It is. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll revisit the Simpsons and suicide. Oh wow, that's that's a real good uh, hook for the, for people there, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, we're going to talk more about suicide later. Yep. Stay um, tuned for more suicide. But uh, I just wanted to touch on a, a couple of things about the the episode itself. So this really is the first Homer episode, I would say, as opposed to a Bart episode. Um, mm-hmm. Mind you, I suppose you could say it's odd as even for Simpsons roasting, but uh, certainly kind of Bart the genius is. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly more Bart-centric. There's also a bit in this episode where uh, it's the first time that Homer really strikes a chord with me, um, where he says the uh, immortal phrase whilst looking for a job. Uh, Lisa finds uh, finds him a job as a supervising technician at a toxic waste dump. And he says, I'm no supervising technician, I'm a technical supervisor. <laughs> um, now, as a, I can very much relate to this being a data analyst. Wondering whether I could be a business analyst or a business intelligence analyst or a data manager or a database manager, looking at jobs for business analysts and seeing they want data analysts and jobs for data analysts and seeing they want business analysts. Essentially, it's uh, one of those fantastic pieces of terminology in the job market that completely prevents you from uh, achieving your full potential. Right. Not that I'm bitter or anything. And if anyone wants to give me a job in that general area, tweet us at uh, underscore retrospecticus and you can call me what you like. I literally don't care. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, there we are. Get Gareth a job. <laughs> okay. Um, there's also a great piece of Homer wisdom in this. Uh, beer. Now there's a temporary solution. Yep. Um, in fact, I'm starting to think this might be Homer. It is most relatable for me, which is uh, probably a time of life thing, if uh, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, actually. I uh, believe Homer's described as being 30... It's either 36 or 38. And I am bang on 37 at the moment. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it could well be that I'm, I'm growing into Homer Simpson, which is uh, a little worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, and Anne, this episode gives us the canonical explanation as to why Homer never really loses his job any more than temporarily, despite being completely rubbish at it. Yes. So yes. Mr. Burns is obviously worried that if he sacks him again, he's going to unleash the Homer that came came at him with the, the sort of the mob and uh, complained about safety. So they're always willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and as many chances as possible to uh, stop that from happening. Um, and I hadn't even, until I, I sort of started re- researching this episode, I hadn't even realised that was the case. Um, I'd forgotten that he had a, a totally different job at the at the power plant. So there we go. That's actually a very good piece of world building there. Mm. Um, and just uh, one last thing, a Burns quote. Uh, he says of Homer... You're not as stupid as you look or sound or our best testing indicates, um, which I, <laughs> yes. I just love as a quote. So, shall we get to debuts? Oh, yes, please. Now, we've already touched slightly on one. This is the <laughs> sort of debut of sort of Wayland Smithers. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why it's not technically a debut. The main one of which is that he was actually heard but not seen in Simpsons Roasting on Open Fire. Uh, but it is his first appearance on camera. We'll go with camera. Okay. Um, and here he is seen as um, extremely tanned, is the official explanation. Okay. Um, so he'd just been on holiday? Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is essentially the retcon for it. So um, it does appear that our old friend uh, Georgie Pellucci, who uh, was the man who decided The Simpsons should be yellow in the first place, uh, miscoloured um, Smithers as African-American. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure what the directions to him were, but there we go. Uh, that that was that was how he decided to interpret that one. Uh, Matt Groening has described it simply as a mistake. David Silverman, who was a long-time director of The Simpsons, uh, stated the Smithers was meant to be Mr. Burns's white sycophant. And okay. I, I don't think any of them were really comfortable with having uh, an African-American character 
in such a position of essential servitude uh, to a rich white character. Yeah, that makes sense. So that was probably a good decision. Um, so it's been retconned into him having a tan from a Caribbean holiday, assumedly at a resort that doesn't allow photography. <laughs> yes. Um, now, at this point, we're a long way from any speculation about Smithers' sexuality. He's just a, a straight-laced middle manager at the moment, um, yep. and a bit of a toady. He's not gone full-on birds of sexual. So I imagine at a later in a later episode, we will probably revisit this. But for now, that's, that's Wayland Smithers, uh, and the next time we see him, he will be yellow. The skin colour of Wayland Smithers wasn't the only mistake, flub, you might say. There's a bit where Sherry and Terry are walking down the hall, and one of them is just a floating head. <laughs> do you remember that bit? I do, yes, I do. And, and this is one of the ones they didn't have to send back for reanimating, apparently. So, you know, I'm yeah. not quite sure how that would slip the net. Yeah, exactly. And it, it always seems strange to me, because... I know very, very little about how an, how animation works, but every time I watch it, I thought you could just draw a, draw a line and fill it in. You know, just just give her a body for those two seconds. Well, debut for you, Otto Man. Ah, yes, for bus driver. Yep, cool, school brilliant. bus driver, enthusiastic recreational drug user, a fan of literature written from the vampire's point of view, and a metalhead. And he's one of Bart's heroes, and you can already see this in Bart's desire to have a tattoo. In, in this uh, episode, Otto shows him his new tattoo. Um, so that's where he's getting those ideas from. He's, um, and as we progress through the series, we'll see that uh, Bart's lack of a solid father figure uh, does tend to lead to him imprinting on strong male role, role models, uh, and not always the correct ones. Mm, mm. Um, eventually, Otto will become one of the first itinerant side characters to pitch up living at the Simpsons house. Uh, and it's in the appropriately titled Otto Show, which also featured Spinal Tap, and I can't wait to get to it because my entire bit is just going to be every quote from Spinal Tap, and I'm <laughs> sure that won't annoy anybody at all. Chief Wiggum also makes his first brief appearance, uh, showing that the Springfield police have no idea who El Barto is. We don't really get much of his personality, so I'll leave that one. Blinky the Fish, who will become important in a later episode, and, very important debut... Bart's first prank call to Mo. Ah, yes. Yes. So his, uh, his nom de plume this time is IP Freely. <laughs> uh, which reminded me, actually, of the first episode of Futurama, where IC Wiener is the uh, prank name used to get Fry to deliver the pizza to the Garage X place. Oh, okay. Um, so there we go. So there's, uh, there are all the debuts. I don't have many did you knows. I'm sure that's going to disappoint all of our many, many long-time listeners. However, um, there are two quite important ones. Let's get back to the whole suicide thing. This isn't the only time in the series that Homer attempts suicide. Isn't it? No, no. Now, I haven't even looked into the Treehouse of Horror episodes, although I know there was one recently where Homer became obsessed with eating himself. Um, right. I'm not going to count that one, as it, I don't think that's a suicide attempt. No, it's no, more no. that death is a side product of kind of his, his actions at that point. The other two attempts that I know of uh, were in Season 11, Episode 6, Hello Gutter, Hello Fadder, in which Homer experiences depression after gaining minor celebrity status by bowling a perfect game. Oh, yes, I have seen that one. Yeah. My, 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 my knowledge of The Simpsons sort of stops at... Well, it doesn't completely stop, but it sort of trails off at roughly season 10 or 11. So, yeah, but, yeah. But, but yeah, I vaguely remember the one where he bowls a perfect game. Yeah, yeah. I'll be honest with you. 
Other than that bit, I can't really remember any of the rest of the episode. So in the episode, Homer goes to the top of a large building and throws himself off, believing his life has no more meaning once his fleeting fame is finished, uh, but changes his mind halfway down and grabs on to Otto, funnily enough, who we were just talking about, who is bungee jumping from the same building. Uh, the extra weight takes them down into a manhole, uh, which takes them past Morlocks, Chuds, and Mole People. Oh, yes. It, it, so you say it, and it all comes flooding back, and it's yeah, just... Yeah. I now I now remember why that does not stick in my brain whatsoever, because it's rubbish. Yeah, and, and that one is particularly uh, abhorrent to me, because that strikes me more as a comedy suicide attempt. Rather than... This one is at least, uh, despite the sort of uh, sight gags leading up to it, it is laden with pathos, you know. This mm. is this is a man who has been driven to his rock bottom and is attempting suicide for relatable reasons, you know. This other one is Homer is just a bit down and decides to kill himself and there's a comedy outcome, you know. It's, mm. um, that's, not, that's not cool. No. There's, I don't think there's no. any other way I can put that. That no. is not cool. The only good comedy suicide that I can think of... <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> the only good comedy suicide that I can think of is Denham from the IT crowd when he was played by Chris Morris. Oh yeah, and he, he just simply walks out of the window without that's missing right. a beat when uh, they discover the pension funds. That's right. That's yeah. right. He's 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 heading a board meeting. Someone sticks their head round the corner saying, "Excuse me, there's some police officers downstairs. They want to talk to you about the pension fund." He says, "Oh, make them a cup of tea, would you?" Excuse me, gentlemen. And yes, he just gets up, opens a window, and just. Steps out of it with his arm still by his side. It's it it it's brilliantly done, and Chris Morris is a genius. Yes, yes. Um, would you believe there is a? I have a second Homer suicide attempt to tell you about. Oh, is it later than season eleven? It, it's even later than that. Yes. Oh um, so okay. talking season nineteen, episode nine, Eternal Moonshine of the Simpson Mind. Can you think what film that heavily ripped? Oh, off? oh, I wonder. I wonder. Well, um, what happens there is he believes he... Oh, my God, this, this is ridiculously dark. So he believes he's beaten Marge for cheating on him and that his life is therefore worthless. He jumps off a bridge but has a soft landing and it turns out it was all a load of hilarious misunderstandings and they were actually throwing him a party. Right. I swear, every word of that I have breathed is true. That happens in the Simpsons episode. Okay. But even okay. that's not as bad as the one I was talking about before. I suppose not. It, it's a strange thing to say, but he's got a more legitimate reason for wanting to end his life. Mm. And it's not treated. It's treated like he's having a psychological crisis. Mm. And that that is the only outcome he sees. Not like the previous one where he bowls a perfect game and then everybody gets sick of him. It's, ugh. And mm. don't even get me started on Mo. And his suicide attempts. Uh, right, okay. Because that is simply a running joke that just doesn't need to exist. And the second did you know this week... Uh, <laughs> oh, dearie me. Uh, so a bit of a cheat here because it's not actually episode uh, specific. But did you know Mr Burns is not voiced by Harry Shearer here or in season one at all? Oh, is he not? No. Now that, no. Now that does come as a, as a surprise. Okay. That, that also came as a surprise to me. When I looked into who it was, awesome, absolutely awesome. So it's a veteran voice actor called Christopher Collins, okay? Now, he did voices in basically all of, you know, the sort of uh, filmation uh, seller toy kind of cartoons that they had in the 80s. 
So we're talking your G.I. Joes, your Transformers, uh, Visionaries, real Ghostbusters. That oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So he was voices in, in most of those, including Cobra Commander in G.I. Joe. And my absolute favourite character in Transformers, Starscream, who is uh, Megatron's second-in-command in the uh, Decepticons, as we all know, of course. Mm-hmm. And he's a, a just a craven, scheming, backstabbing... He double-crosses people for the joy of double-crossing them, essentially. And he's got a voice which I'm not even going to attempt here. Um, but it's it's so sort of nasally and whiny art. It's just absolutely brilliant. It's also basically exactly the same voice as Cobra Commander. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was just... Uh, to find out it was that same guy was fantastic. Obviously, Harry Shearer has the um, iconic Mr. Burns voice. I would say he's better, but that might just be, you know, the amount of times that I've heard Harry Shearer doing it, whereas Christopher Collins, I think, has three, maybe four episodes. Mm. Um, okay. So there we go. Uh, and unfortunately, he died from a cerebral hemorrhage in 1994, aged 44. Oh. Um, and he was apparently also um, replaced by Hank Azaria because Sam Simon found him difficult to work with, which is not the first time we've heard that um, of... Uh, somebody in the in the series, uh, and just a final uh, digital on Christopher Collins. He also recorded lines for Mo, which were meant to be in season one, but these were actually overdubbed by Hank Azaria before broadcast. So there we go. Uh, that is everything I have to say, uh, including several rants and some uh, <laughs> American folklore uh, about Homer's Odyssey, uh, which good. leads us to the Morris Worm. Right, absolutely. Okay, so this is the story of a guy called Robert Tapan Morris. Yes, that's an unusual middle name. We'll get to that in a bit. He created the Morris Worm in 1988, also known as the Great Worm. And he was the first person to be convicted under the US Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So, but first, a little background. Now, I'm a big fan of a guy called James Rolfe and his angry video game nerd character. But every time I watch it, and he talks about a game from the mid-80s, he always goes, of course, there was no internet back then. And I, and I always think, do you need to tell people that? You know, do, do people not have a rough idea of what technology was like at a given time? I mean, if we, if we do get into, you know, season 10, 11 of The Simpsons, we get to roughly 2001, and we start talking about, you know, the 9-11 attacks or something like that, are we going to have to go, oh, of course, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, no social media back then. So so given that, I thought I'd just go back and just have a look at what the internet was like in the late 80s and early 90s. I work in IT, and I'm going to cover a few bits of terminology, talk about technology. So I'm going to try and not go above people's heads, but I don't want to be patronising either. So, like we said last episode, you're the control hamster. So, <laughs> so, so if I'm saying something really obvious or if I'm saying something that's just like really advanced, you, you tell me and I'll do something about it. Absolutely. Okay. So, first of all, what is the internet? Now, the internet, as a principle, is very simple. It's just computers that are interconnected through a network. Okay, you've lost me there. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so, there are a series of international protocols and standards and whatever else to get computers on the internet and have computers to be able to talk to each other. And these technologies have existed 
for quite a while. Um, in the 70s, there was, there was something called ARPANET, which was run by the US government, which was a key player in the early internet, but I don't really want to go into details of that. There's a bit of terminology I need to go over, which is the idea of servers and clients. And a client is a computer that communicates with a server, and a server is a computer that serves uh, requests and responses to clients. So nowadays with the internet, if you've got a computer and you are uh, logging onto a web page, then your computer is the client and the computer that's generating the web page is the server. And I also need to say what a daemon is or daemon, because it's spelt really weirdly. It's D-A-E-M-O-N. Ah, oh, I do remember this term. Right, okay, okay. So, so a daemon is a program that sits running on a server waiting to serve requests from a client. So a standard program, you'll fire it up, you'll do something with it, you'll close it down again. A daemon just sits there running, just waiting to receive requests and give out responses. Okay. And if you were online a lot during the late 80s, early 90s, you would have heard this sound almost every day. Uh, bringing back, bringing back memory, memories. Oh God, absolutely, yeah. Cable net over in Bedford. Yeah. Okay, that's enough of that. Yeah, that, that's enough of that forever. Yeah. Okay. Remembering why we got rid of that. <laughs> okay, so so that's the sound of a dial-up modem connecting to the internet. One of the key things about the internet then, compared to now, is that it was slow. Very, very slow. And one of the reasons for why it was so slow was because the connections were over phone lines. And phone lines are analog and computers use digital signals. So modems had to convert between the two. And that's one of the things that took, took quite a lot of time. There were plenty of internet services back then, but it was mostly for the military, academics and keen enthusiasts. So things like uh, bulletin board services existed. You could log on to a BBS and you could get a lot of the information that you would get on a website today. So you could get news, stories, download programs, that sort of thing. But like I say, it, it was really only a thing for enthusiasts because it was very expensive getting onto the internet and you had to really know what you were doing. But what didn't exist in the early 80s, certainly what didn't exist at the time of the first series of The Simpsons, was the World Wide Web. So the World Wide Web, that refers to web pages that are all linked together with hyperlinks. The technology for the web was developed by Tim Berners-Lee at CERN. And while the first web browser was released outside of CERN in 1991, the web didn't reach the peak of its popularity until the mid-90s. So in summary, the internet did exist in the late 80s and early 90s, but for the casual user, very slow and everything was on the command line you know like 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 you see hackers in films use yeah you know yeah black screen the, the line. numbers come down the screen that's, yeah that's yeah. right that's right that yeah. that sort of thing so you really had to know what you were doing in order to use it it wasn't massively user-friendly and elements of the internet were surprisingly unsecure especially by today's standards one such example was the finger protocol Ooh. yeah this is mm-hmm I've actually written in my notes, 
pause for Gareth's childish sniggering. <laughs> and I did not disappoint. Yep, so thank you for that. So the point of the finger protocol is to provide the client with information about a user on a server. And a server running the finger daemon, abbreviated to finger D, or fingered, more sniggering. Ah, <laughs> oh, fantastic. Now, that program could return information about users to any client that requested it. If you ran a client that was connected to an internet and you knew where a server was, you could send a command to just say to that server, right, tell me information about this user. Say your username was Gareth or G Hirons or whatever it was. I'd go, right, finger G Hirons. <laughs> I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then without any authentication or anything like that, the server would come back and say, yep, user G Hirons, he exists. Uh, his username is G Hirons. His first name is Gareth. His last name is Hirons. This is his email. And this is when he was last on the server. And this is his user access level, all that sort of thing. No authentication, no passwords, nothing like that. If you knew a server, you could get information about everyone on the server. So obviously that's a huge security concern. So fairly common for servers to run the finger daemon in the early days of the internet, pretty much unheard of today. And these security concerns were massively brought to light by the subject of our story, one Robert Tapan Morris. So he came from American computing royalty. His father was also called Robert Morris. I don't know if this is just confirmation bias, but in my experience, Americans kind of have trouble with dynastic names, you know? So there's Senior and Junior and the third. So Robert Morris Senior wanted to call his son Robert Morris as well, but gave him the rather unusual middle name Tapan. Now, I've Googled it, and apparently it's a village in New York. Okay. So maybe he was named after a village in New York that his father liked to go on holiday to. Possibly. Or it could be the whole place of conception thing that the uh, Beckhams espoused a little while oh, ago. Oh, it could be, couldn't it? Oh, there's a thought. Oh, that's a horrible thought, mm. actually. Back to the fingering again. Yes. Oh, dear me. This is a complete flip, this show. <laughs> We've had suicide, and now, now we're turning into carry-on. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So, so that's enough fingering for now. <laughs> so his father, Robert Morris, he worked at Bell Labs and was a key contributor to the Unix operating system. The Unix operating system, massively important, still underpins the vast majority of operating systems today. And later, he rather ironically became chief scientist at the National Computer Security Centre of the National Security Agency. Oh, okay. Yep. So the younger Morris followed in his father's footsteps, studying for a bachelor's degree at Harvard before moving on to graduate studies at Cornell. So, you know, this is, you know, the pinnacle of, of American educational institutions. Yeah, I wonder if he uh, encountered any of the Simpsons writers at Harvard. Oh, you never know. Mm. He, he may have done if he, pop, if he popped into the Harvard Lampoon. So anyway, while at Cornell, he developed the computer program that would make him famous. It became known as the Morris Worm, also known as the Great Worm. Now, I should say that the Morris Worm was a worm and not a virus. And there is a key difference between them. So the difference between a worm and a virus is that a virus is deliberately malicious. So it might be designed to spread and steal information like credit card numbers. So it might deliberately corrupt computers to make them unusable. A worm, however, is just designed to spread from computer to computer without authorization. 
So basically going from one computer to another one without anyone giving it permission to do so. Right, okay. So in essence, it's a, it's a programming experiment then. Or, or maybe mm. something to see just how far it would be able to spread. Do, do we have any word on why he created it? That's exactly right. You've got it straight away. So he developed it as a curious academic exercise in an attempt to gauge the size of the internet. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Because, you know, anyone who knew what they were doing could get on the internet. There was no central registration of exactly how many computers there were. No, and think so, of all the fingering you'd have to do to find uh, all the users. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so he developed this program and released it on November the 2nd, 1988. And he released it from a network at MIT. So we're on so we're into another university here. So so he was trying to cover his tracks. So he could say, "Oh, I came from MIT. It wasn't me. You know, I study at Cornell." Oh, so he he was being a little underhanded about everything then. Well, he was being very underhanded as as we shall find out. Now, and I'm, I'm going to have to go back to Finger D again, <laughs> because, because he used a security flaw with this Finger program to spread, and it took advantage of what's called an overflow vulnerability. That's another technical term, so got to explain what that means. So in an operating system, programs are given memory to use. So program A, the system will go, right, program A can have that block of memory, and then program B can have that block. And memory is linear, so two programs can have two blocks of memory that are right next to each other. And the finger demon had a small amount of memory allocated to it for checking the username sent over by the client. But what the program didn't do was check that the length of the username being given to it would fit inside that memory. Oh, okay. So it would accept a string you know, accept an argument that was longer than the memory allocated to it. And what the Morris worm did was make the first 512 bytes of the string just gibberish, just stuff that didn't do anything. But after that, it put in some commands, which would indirectly, and it's, you know, it's really quite complicated, but would lead to the... Morris Worm being installed on the computer where the finger demon is running. Bear with me, I've come up with an analogy for this. So say you're checking into a hotel and you go to the reception desk and there's a receptionist there and you're asked to fill out a form to to register your details with a hotel. And next to this form there is a piece of paper that is going to contain instructions for the hotel porters to say what they're going to do that day. So you start writing your name in the box and you write a really, really long name. um, Joey, Jojo, Junior, Shabadoo, Nahasa, Pima, and you you just keep going. And you write so far that you write write outside of the box and onto the piece of paper that tells the porters what to do. So your name becomes Joey, Jojo, Junior, Shabadoo, Nahasa, Pima, Petalon, burn the hotel to the ground. And the receptionist doesn't check that you've done this they take the form off and go, yep, thanks very much, here's your hotel key. The, and the porters later take their piece of paper, go, oh, right, I'm going to burn the hotel to the ground. There we are, no hotel. So you've just done something incredibly malicious. Oh, right, so actually it's buffering the commands over into a separate piece of the memory 
where it will be run rather than taken as, as a static thing that's been returned by the finger command. Exactly, exactly. Yes, I did an IT. Yes, yes, very good, very good. So the Morris worm was able to exploit this flaw and flaws in other programs in order to spread. So once installed, one of the things it would do was try and suss out passwords through what's called a brute force attack. Because although people aren't that great with passwords these days, back then they were even worse with passwords. So people would just have their password as password, or they'd have it as their first name, or they'd have it as their first name but backwards, or their first name but repeated. So what the Morris worm would do would, was go over all of these rules to try and crack passwords. And that's quite a memory-intensive process. So why was the worm so detrimental? Well, if there was one copy of it running on a computer, that wouldn't be so bad. You might not even notice. What Morris was worried about was system administrators spoofing that his worm was already on their systems. So before installing itself, the worm would do a quick check to see if it was already installed. And the idea was that if it was already installed, it wouldn't install itself again. But what he did, he programmed it to have a one in seven chance of ignoring its own installation check. So very quickly, uh, the worm spread, many, many copies ended up on many, many machines, and the machines would just grind to a halt because all their runtime was dedicated to serving the many, many copies of the Morris worm that was on it. And it ended up infecting around 60,000 systems and removing it proved to be very problematic. So if a computer was infected, it had to be completely removed from the internet because otherwise it was just gonna keep infecting other computers that it came into contact with. And the worm then needed to be removed manually and this could take days. So it was very difficult to estimate the damages at the time and the damages are you know, still a source of controversy really. But the US government put it anywhere between 100,000 and $10 million. Now, that's quite, that's quite wide. That's quite it? a big spread. It's quite a big spread. Morris was the first person to be tried and convicted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and he was found guilty on January the 23rd, 1990, just two days after Homer's Odyssey was first aired. And he was found guilty of intentionally causing damage to federal computers because it, because it infected so many computers that were on the internet. A lot of government computers were on the internet. And you know, therefore it became a federal crime. It became a felony because he took down so many government computers. Yeah, and it was definitely deliberate. He had, he had meant to spread that program, even if he wasn't necessarily cognizant of how much damage it was going to do. Yes. Now, n now it's a very interesting legal issue uh, because Morris tried to argue that it wasn't intentional. And there's some very, very detailed legal arguments, which I'm not going to go into about the wording of the law, but he tried to plead his case, but it wasn't done deliberately. He didn't go out to cause harm, but, you know, the jury found that, you know, he must have known what he was doing. He must have known that what he was doing was going to cause so much harm. So, so he avoided a prison sentence, but instead he was sentenced to three years probation, 400 hours of community service, a $10,000 fine, and he had to pay his costs. Okay, so that's, that's a sensible approach, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, 
seems to seems to fit the nature of the crime, I'd say. So Morris went on to have a very impressive career in IT. So in 1995, he co-founded a company called ViaWeb, which made an early e-commerce platform. In 1998, ViaWeb was sold to Yahoo for $49 million. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. A year later, Morris received his PhD from Harvard and was appointed an associate professor at MIT, and he was awarded tenure back in 2006, where he remains to this day. And so there we are. That is the story of the Morris worm. I, 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 just, I just find it incredible that, uh, you know, the institute, MIT, that he launched the Morris worm from, later went, do you want to be a professor? Do you want tenure? <laughs> Well, you hear about that, don't you? Kind of people who um, have masterminded cyber attacks on um, kind of large institutions are, are often tracked down and um, uh, employed to shore up the cyber defences of those uh, organisations. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, 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 that, now that's a whole that's a whole other field in IT. That that there are people who do. Oh God, going back on the innuendos, penetration testing. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I do remember, though, as a as an early internet adopter, the uh, the fear of of getting a virus. Um, antivirus software, I don't believe, was very uh, widespread at that stage. Certainly, seemed quite hard to get hold of for us. Uh, we we did eventually, um, but yeah, just the uh, the sort of I guess the fear and the fear of the unknown. And you'd hear about these viruses that would do bizarre things. There was a rumor at school that there was one that would play poker against you, and if you lost, then uh, it'd delete your. Uh, Hard drive and all that kind of thing. It, it's strange how it sort of it, it almost became urban legend stuff. Uh, I think the the cyber attacks that uh, viruses that have actually taken hold have been a lot more boring. They've just done kind of disruptive stuff to do with finances. No, nothing so fun as forcing you to play poker for your uh, very cyber existence. No, no. Um, just to close this on a suitably innuendo laden note, I did once get a computer virus. And it was through sticking my lead in a dodgy port without protection. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't copy that floppy. And on that note, we bring to a close a uh, fantastically, um, by parts harrowing and by parts um, bawdy episode of Retrospecticus. Can I just say, they're not all like this one. No, no, no. And that was a complete flip. That was a complete flip. Usually we're having all the fun in the first half and then I get to talk about uh, death and suicide and repression and all those nasty things. But don't worry, I'll be back to talking about war on the next episode. And I'll be back to the adventures of Captain Wacky. So if in the meantime you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can email us on the podcast at retrospecticus.org or tweet at us. You can tell I'm not very uh, experienced in Twitter. Tweet at. Is that, is that Yeah, that's thing? fine. Is that's that fine. Thing? Oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah. So uh, that's at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. That was episode three, The Morris Worms Odyssey. There we are. We shall see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>